Hey, good day and welcome to this edition of Slaves to the Algo. My name is Suresh Shankar. I'm the founder and CEO of Crayon Data. And today I'm delighted to have as my guest Ravi Santanam. Ravi is the only CMO of an Indian company to be nominated to the Forbes list of most illustrious CMOs. And that's a fantastic honor. Congratulations, Ravi, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Suresh. Thank you. Thank you so much. And what's interesting is about having Ravi on the show is that he actually wrote a post where he said, today's marketing leader needs to prioritize personalized, relevant customer experience. And he believes that machine learning and data science are critical tools to marketers. But he started his career when these were all not existent. So I think it's a lovely journey. And I think that's what we'll try and cover today. Ravi, uh, welcome to the show. And could you tell us a little bit about yourself, not just on your professional side, but personal before we kick things off? Uh, I've been following football, Suresh, for the last uh, 25 years. And uh, I, I really like the way the managers manage teams. And uh, the biggest leadership lesson of how do you actually manage a team of super achievers when you don't even play the game and you don't even know. And many of these managers have not even played the game. And yep. uh, that has been one interesting insight in the way in which people manage superstars. So I, I really love it. And are you and a, are you a, a Liverpool fan like me? Are you a Liverpool fan? I'm a Manchester fan. United fan. Oh, okay. You guys are the past. We're the future. <laughs> uh, but, but, but it's interesting you picked up that and maybe, you know, instead of going to the normal thing, even that as world has changed, isn't it? Today, they're able to tell people that 70 minutes, I'm going to take out a player. How many minutes you're running? What are the expected goals? I mean, it seems like AI algo is coming to everything. Have you seen yeah, that side I, of football I, as well? Yeah, because when I started watching way back in 93, 94, when ESPN started to come into India, and the kind of uh, statistics which people used to watch uh, and used to share during the and post-match normally. And today what I see is a sea change of difference in terms of how many kilometers people run, how many twists and turns people make, and which direction the feet is because of which the goal will be in this direction, that direction. Amazing amount of uh, science being used to what used to be a very normal game, which we used to play and learn and the amount of technology that is coming into it and including the IPL nowadays. Amazing. Mm -hmm. True. Amazing. And, and that's something I'll talk about perhaps since of your shared interest in football and sport, I'll ask you about how science and art needs to, because finally people need to perform yes. as well. Yeah. But Ravi, a very quick start, you know, as a consumer and in your business life, can you just give us some two, three good illustrations of algorithms that have, taken over our lives without us even knowing about it. Like for example, I think everybody gets up in the morning and looks and if you ask me a question which I don't know, I start searching. That's all good. Okay. And if I want to go from here to my office and I put it on the map, that's some algo which is going on to figure out which is the best route to take. And uh, I can not think of anything that we do which is not powered by an algo today. If you start thinking about it. And one of the most interesting thing which uh, I learned uh, maybe five years, six years back is... Uh, the way bidding happens for ads in the internet world and the kind of algorithm and the kind of technology in 40 milliseconds, the way the whole thing comes in to figure out who has to bid and who has to get the ad and getting the things served inside the news item that you're reading. It's like one phenomenal. Actually, when I actually sat down and when somebody put it on a piece of paper and they explained to me in 2013, I think, or 14, I was amazed. I said, wow. This is like a goosebump moment for me. And when you come into your world as a banker and you look at this stuff, um, have you actually seen 
a lot of examples of how consumer banks are adapting and using these kind of things. Um, you know, in, I, I in think it's uh, the banks have used it much, much better on the risk side and not on the consumer facing side. And if we have to look back at the banks, uh, I think most of the banks have done a lot of work on algorithms, on fraud, on risk mm -hmm. and on credit. Mm -hmm. So these are the three places where I see the amount of algorithms and the amount of uh, work that has happened is phenomenally high. And this is normally not visible to the consumers in the front end. And uh, I have seen very many people come back to us and tell, hey, you as HDFC bank, call me when I swipe my card. Mm -hmm. And when there is a little bit higher or normal where you're supposedly swiping in say a foreign country, you immediately get a call from RPRM desk, which is saying, are mm -hmm. you abroad? Are you swiping? And all these are all very specific risk algorithms, fraud algorithms, which keep working. On the ability to showcase to consumers on the marketing side, I think there is a lot more left to be done. I think uh, maybe only around 2014, 15, people have really mm -hmm. seen that happening as digital came into the center stage of banking. And people started using more of digital to start engaging with the banks. The front-end portion is coming alive now. But in my view, risk, fraud, algorithms have been there for almost 10-15 uh, years. Yeah. And before you came into banking, you were in telecom, right? Uh, has telecom been more advanced in the use of algorithms um, as compared on to... The consumer side, on the consumer side, I do believe purely because of the fact that the humongous amount of data which a telco generates is like unimaginable. And uh, mm -hmm. I still remember the kind of uh, customer base that we had in the company in which I worked for 200 million customer base and each of the customers calling some 20 times a day. And then the amount of data location and who they are calling, what time they are calling. It's an amazing amount of data. And I think uh, telcos were far for advanced on the consumer side of it. I mm -hmm. think banks are picking up pace now and uh, banks have much more richer data. Mm -hmm. Obviously, because of the fact that if you can put the way you spend, you get a much mm -hmm. bigger profile of a consumer rather than just knowing that a person is calling, say, between Bombay and Delhi or mm -hmm. doing a lot of international calls. That means only an international travel beyond that one. Mm -hmm. Because you don't necessarily go by the location. But banks have a much, 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 much richer consumer data in terms of spends because the actual money you spend in a way defines your personality, in a way defines uh, what you do as an individual. And that brings me to a very interesting thing that you said, you know, in a telco, you're dealing with 200 million, 250 million consumers, at least in India. But I think everywhere in the world, telcos tend to have more consumers than banks because there are three or four and then you have 10 or 15 banks. But in a bank, though, you may have 50 million consumers, you have a very much more complex set of data to handle. So how do you, you know, what kind of algos are you seeing that are doing different kinds of things? Because there are things that do scale very well and things that do speed very well. And the advertising bidding thing you talked about is probably an example of doing scale, speed and complexity very well. Mm -hmm. So how do you actually see these kind of things? When you look at algos today, do you look at all of these as very different things for different purposes? I do see that because in telco, because of India specifically being a prepaid country, what we wanted was much more real time uh, intervention that we wanted to do. Because if you miss that intervention, when we were working in telcos, the customer could go ahead and do it with somebody else because SIM was mm -hmm. freely available, multiple SIM phones and all those stuff. In banks, for me, it is more about shaping behavior in the future. The algorithms, I'm more interested in not predicting, but shaping. Because 
in the bank's uh, way of looking things, except for cards which are more offer-led spends, as a consumer, you don't think of money every day, every minute. <clears throat> the number of products I sell, for example, there are 57 retail products we sell. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it, it's very simple, universal truth that there is a certain life stage at which you will buy a certain product to start mm -hmm. with. You will start looking at insurance most likely when you have a kid. Mm -hmm. Because of the fact that the first time the hormonal changes that happens in the body of human beings, when you see somebody you are dependent, it suddenly makes you very, very susceptible to an insurance call. Before that, you don't bother really. And there is a yes. certain stage in which you will go ahead and buy a house. You're not going to buy every alternate month a house. Mm -hmm. So here, what is important is how do I shape behavior by way of understanding data? So the algorithms that we look for in bank is more about shaping behaviors and making sure some action happens not on a real, near real-time basis because I don't think you get up on the bed on the right-hand side and decide to go and buy a house or go and buy a car. So you have time. But when you have that time, you should be extremely sharp. Otherwise, you will end to spray everywhere. Whereas in telcos, you have to be very fast. You have to be very, very big in terms of scale, at least in India, Indian context. So I see a big difference in terms of uh, these two. And, and that's interesting. So what you're saying is that when you have to operate it's scale and speed, just being able to predict because the machine has to do it very quickly without thinking. But when you're shaping, it's a completely different kind of a much richer understanding that you need the algorithms yeah. to be able to fulfill. And uh, when you kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's another interesting thing that uh, as you were talking about the whole uh, telco example that you were mentioning and how you're looking at the bank. Now, today, do you see a place where people are bringing together complex data sets uh, and you know you i'm going to go back to something you mentioned right at the beginning where you said you wake up in the morning and you know you're, you're searching for something or you get a map one of the most frightening algos for me is when i'm sitting in my office before pre-covid and suddenly you know a notification pops up saying your next appointment is in 45 minutes and it's going to take you 25 minutes to get there because it's picking it up from two different places and it's telling you something to do and so do you see that kind of thing now happening, not just within an ecosystem like Google or Apple, but also, let's say, banks and telcos or airlines and things like that? With a certain category of uh, industries, I do think it's worth uh, doing it. And uh, we did do a lot of thinking around on that aspect, say, with the airlines, for example, specifically, or a hotel, for example, because there's a large amount of spend at one point of time. So we know, if, for example, bill payment is something which we use today. And mm -hmm. every time when a bill is there or a bill has to be paid, we actually prompt. And uh, if there is no money, we can actually prompt and say, hey, do you want a loan to pay the bills? Because you know exactly what is happening in that uh, particular customer's thing. Yes. So collaboration with certain big scale industries very much feasible. I'll see post-COVID when airline and travel comes back. But that was the first use case that we could easily think of. And uh, repayments, because of the fact that you are aware of the repayment that needs to happen. And that was also another thing that we can easily think of. Okay. But um, what's interesting is, uh, for me, when I look at this is, uh, I mean, like you, I'm died in the wool, been working for a long time. Uh, and one of the things that I see is that the CMO or the, or the marketer of today, and I think, you know, as a, this is a very relevant question for you as one of the more influential CMOs of the world has to think very differently from the way we used to think about consumers, um, let's say, 
you know, even two decades ago. I mean, consumers keep changing, but we've always known there are things like segmentation and all that. We always know that, you know, we know how we had to market, let's say, insurance and home loans. But it seems that the techniques and the tools are completely different. So could you give us some examples of how you as a CMO think today, which is very different from the way you were thinking, let's say, 10 years ago? See, uh, I, I can go one step by step. Like, for example, the only person who understood data in our team used to be called an MS person. True. When we all started, right? So it became a power user. And today we have platform specialists working for us. And these are people who are supposedly good in a platform. It's not even entire marketing, but specific platform. So you suddenly have a very, very different set of profile of people coming together. Second, when you wanted to understand consumers, while it is still true, if you do not go, you do not grow. I still believe in that. You have to go to the market and spend time with consumers and understand. And today you can sit and listen to consumers in the social media and understand, which is true. because consumers are expressing themselves. And earlier they had no opportunity to express. You have to go and meet them. Maybe the only way they express themselves is when they were not buying your product. True. Today, when the usage is happening and if they don't like the usage of a product, they're going to express themselves in social media. And uh, when we were there, we thought we were the kings uh, and we will shape the way the brand would be felt by consumers. And uh, as marketeer, you are the only ones who will direct the messaging. And today you have lost that control because the messaging is going to be given by millions and millions of consumers about your brand. And sure. people used to trust only the brand. And since there was not much of uh, interaction amongst consumers, you were trusting a small set of people who you are interacting with. Today, you're willing to trust anyone and everyone on the basis of reviews and uh, ratings which people put on the ground. So the ability of a marketeer to control the messaging is now out. So the marketer has to now say that I'm not the brand custodian, I'm the brand experience custodian. So once you define your role as the custodian of brand experience, then you suddenly see a change in the way in which you look at things. So brand experience is at every touch point. Mm -hmm. Brand experience is being delivered by everybody in the organization. It's right from start to end to finish. So you need to start getting involved in every touch point in terms of what happens and then make sure that the brand experience is correct, is the right time, right place. Everything works in a precision. Otherwise, your communication can say one thing and the experience that is being derived by the consumer, whether it is in the usage of the product or whether it is the way they are being responded to when there is a problem. Earlier, that was not the way it was being designed. So if the call center is not picking up the call, somebody is writing today in social media. You can't reach True. you. So that is also so going that's to interesting. Uh, that's interesting. Would you then therefore say that your brand experience is also being shaped by the consumers who have a voice? So I mean, they also you know, in some ways responsible for the experience because they're talking about your brand, right? It's not just you or your salespeople or your, you know, television ads that's speaking for you. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's why you have to be extremely clear in terms of what you commit. And if you deliver it, and when you deliver it, the consumers are going to also talk good about you. So the flip side of it is do it well. And definitely the consumers are going to do all the more work for you rather than you trying to do it just by the wake of uh, saying it and not doing it. Earlier you can get away, but I don't think now you can get away. So it's better to do it and then talk about it. And if you do it, I think consumers are going to talk about you. So Ravi, this is a fascinating conversation because I think as you probably remember when you talked about listening to consumers, we all used to go out and do those focus groups and talk to eight yeah, people yeah. and write things on pads and all of that stuff. 
And now, as um, you're pointing out, I, I mean, one of the things I'm fond of saying is that the voice of the customer is already with you. It's lying in your data. And if you don't use that data, you don't really get anywhere. And that brings me to an interesting thing. Lots of organizations and companies spend money investing in what they call data collection. No, I have a lot of data on my consumer. And I always keep asking the other question, which is what are the return on that data? So as a CMO, what are you doing? What are the kind of things that you're investing in to get a return on the data that you already have? I mean, HDFC has over 50 million consumers. So what are the kind of things that I think today's CMO is doing to get return on that data investment? So the first thing is to put all the data together. It looks cliched, but that's the most important thing. And when we look at data to put together, everybody talks about normally the transactions data. And whereas we have moved away from that as HDFC Bank, and we are looking at every touch point interaction data, because I think richness of the interaction when the consumer is having with the brand, whether mm -hmm. it is in the CRM, where the consumer is being talked to by a by our, one of our colleagues and he's entering or she's entering in the CRM, is there an outbound call center, inbound call center, whether it is social media, bringing it all together and using a lot of NLP to appreciate what consumers are really talking about, what they really need, is giving us a lot more richness to understand the number part of it which comes. So mm -hmm. for us, the investment is also in that direction. And second is also about the speed at which we can generate hypothesis. Yep. So That's... earlier we, we were not very sure about the, how many hypotheses that we could generate and what she should. It was more gut-based. Yes, I do believe mm -hmm. gut is all acquired wisdom. So we used to go ahead and respect the gut. But today, my view is like generate more hypotheses, test more hypotheses. So the entire mm -hmm. investment is all about how many more hypotheses you can generate and how quickly you can test those hypotheses. So the investment is on hypothesis generation, also on tools mm -hmm. which can test those hypotheses very clearly and quickly. So that mm -hmm. you don't have to have the thing that uh, I keep telling there is no God. Okay. Consumers will design their own offers. You just have to give them 10 things in front of them. So find out hypothesis, put that in front of the consumer, let them decide what is good for them. Use that to scale it up. So the investment is on hypothesis generation and testing. That's very interesting from the tech side. And are you seeing a new generation of young marketers? I mean, I would consider people like us to be what we call digital immigrants. And now currently a lot of the people are coming into the industry seem to be AI digital natives, right? They get this instinctively. Are you seeing that kind of change in the way young people are coming into the industry and their comfort levels with, 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 with the using algorithms and data? Oh, I think it comes very, very naturally to them. And uh, many of the things that we are all talking has been learned from them, for me at least. Because at the end of the day, when they come out and uh, since they have been using mobile phones to start with, and uh, if they have gone in this direction and one or two questions, they're able to easily pick up and collect the dots between what's happening in social media to what's happening in the bank to what's happening in the data on telco. They're easy to connect because they're genuinely natives. So for me, they're all my teachers, my mentors, and uh, my. some of these people actually also have this knack of uh, looking at the corners of their eyes. And uh, I think that's a skill which uh, I always wanted to pick up, saying that, what is it that makes you think in the corner of the eyes? And I had an ex-boss who used to always say 99.99% of the time when it works, he never used to bother. But one instance, when it was not working, he will get into it deeply. I used to say like, this is one in a million. Why are you so worried about it? I don't think it is going to repeat. He'll say, no, this is the one which will expand your thinking horizon. 
what is it that you missed mm-hmm. that if you know this area so well and you designed the process and there is an exception that's happening that's an area which you have missed so you have to get into only the exception so don't bother about the 99 bother about the 0.5 here and 0.5 there which are the real extremes so some of these kids naturally get those extremes very easily i don't know what is that that uh, they drink or what is it that they eat so sometimes <laughs> or is it I, I that just that, that the the bell curve is different for them and therefore they're far easy what appears to us like an extreme maybe more in the in the, in the in the middle of the bell for them i guess because of what they've grown up with yeah yeah i, I maybe you put it rightly in the statistical format they're in the right and left so sometimes when i meet those people it's really really very exciting to talk to these people and uh, i do meet some of those people not only in uh, within the bank but also in some of these conferences and uh, the way some of these people articulate and the way they are able to visualize things and connect between what we thought is uh, something which is not connectable uh, it's it's amazing I, i really like and the energy keeps flowing in the organization because of this Hey, Ravi, I think we'll keep talking about that. I did have a few questions, right, about this. And some of these are about, I think, um, some of what we're seeing in the world today about digital giants. Even in India, if you take Reliance, Jio, and people like that are taking over, right? I mean, the, the big platforms, the Amazons and Flipkarts and the Swiggies and the Reliance, Jios in India. But around the world, digital giants seem to be taking over things, right? And uh, most of them seem to have the inherent advantage of being digitally native as companies. so when you think of a traditional enterprise a bank you mentioned airlines and hotels and retail how do you think you can compete in this age of ai and still stay relevant and if so I what are the kind of assets that you have that you can use to kind of compete against these guys i strongly believe uh, it's a question of how quickly you can get technology we in hdfc bank want to be known as a technology company in the banking industry mm-hmm. and that's the way we want to define ourselves and uh, every industry will have its own nuances suresh and uh, the mm-hmm. way i look at uh, in terms of banking and we were talking about it earlier also you do not buy a banking product every day the cycle is almost a year or a four year period or a once in 15 year period home loan kind of stuff now we have an inherent advantage of people coming and checking their bank balances and doing transactions in the banking account at least five times to 10 times a month Mm-hmm. and the way in which it is happening everything is happening digitally also which means if i have to sell a product where another competition is going to come in it might happen once in 2 years so you buying a credit card might happen once in 3 years maybe you buying a mm-hmm. car loan might happen once in 4 years now in this 4 year period i have at least in a year 60 interactions with you or rather a customer is having an interaction with you and in the 4 year period there are 250 interactions which the customer is having with the bank and after 4 years the customer is going to take a call that i am going to replace my car so who can help me buy a new car now if you are not able to convince a customer that they should look at you first in this 240 interaction i think i should be sacked in this company because that's the advantage a bank has in terms of the ability to have a connect with the customer every month and at least five times to 10 times a month and the entire investment that we are also doing is to make each one of these interactions pleasurable and what is it that we can learn from these interactions that we can actually suggest to the customer what should be the next best action for him for her if we do that i think uh, this fintech can easily and it's, it's we have all the data those people so have I, to collect the data also 
I think it's very interesting because the metric that you never mentioned in this particular thing was things like what is the balance and how much they're spending in the lifetime. But these are the traditional things banks have used. You talked about number of interactions. And if you look at any digital brand, that's what they talk about. Monthly active users, number of interactions, yeah, exactly. number of impressions. So I think you're already like, you know, smoking that Kool-Aid that your team is <laughs> smoking. Uh, which brings me to another facet that I wanted to explore with you. You're sitting in India, which is uh, in some ways, you know, a big tech center. Lots of big startups, global startups are coming out there. But from an AI perspective and from a data perspective, it's really been the US and China that have been the ones leading that. So where do you see not just HDFC, but Indian companies and Indian talent stand in the use of AI on a global standard? Maybe we don't have the product set per se, and uh, I have not seen much of productized AI coming from anywhere in the world, rather, except one or two uh, companies which talk about it. I've been working with a lot of uh, small-time companies, uh, not small-time, I would not use the word small-time, that's not the right, a lot of startups in this field. And uh, many of them are pretty sharp. Many of them are pretty sharp in terms of uh, trying to make AI as simple as possible for a not necessarily a bank to use, but maybe a lots and lots of companies to use. And uh, most of these promoters are around 30, 35. And uh, I, I see a lot of talent here within the country, at least in India, where I see people having tools who are willing to come and spend time with you, who actually want to do a lot of work with you purely because of the fact that, yes, obviously, HDFC Bank has got a lot of data. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, their ability to actually make an impact is also pretty high. I'm pretty confident that talent-wise, intelligence-wise, we don't have a problem. Great. That's great to know. And I think um, one of the big things that we keep hearing about, at least sitting in Southeast Asia, where I do, is that uh, India is a little bit more of an open ecosystem. And um, in China, I think the internet companies and everything has progressed much faster because they kept it closed and yeah, yeah, nowhere to go true. to. And I think that's one advantage they've had, but I can see that a lot of um, the big Indian players are slowly catching up. And what would you see? Um, I presume you're going to stay on that Forbes list for, for a few years now. So if you come back three years from now when you're in the top of that list or whatever it is, what would you see as the three or four big things that between today and the next three years, you know, the changes that you think will happen in the use of it, data, algos, etc.? See, the first thing is it will become more pervasive than what it is today. I think more decisions are going to be taken basis data and more people are going to ask you this question, how much testing you have done before you scale up. Mm -hmm. I think that, that's going to become uh, test and learn is going to become a normal part of a culture in many big organizations. And that's one thing which I would love to see also. And because that actually takes, uh, makes everybody equal in a big boardroom. So I used to keep joking True. that uh, I used to keep joking that because of digital, hippo is out of the room. So the highest paid person's opinion count is no more in a possible in a boardroom purely because of the fact that yes, all perceptions we will go and test and consumer wins. So or, that's or should I say the famous Diwar line? You know, there'll be one nerd who comes in and says, "Mere paas data hai." <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's going to happen because they're going to come back and tell you, like, you can say whatever you want to say with 25 years of experience, Ravi, but this is what the consumers are saying, and this is what the data is saying. So that's going to increase tremendously. What's also going to increase is the requirement of a human touch, and uh, I strongly believe. Uh, we need to bring empathy in our interactions with consumers and it has to be empathetic and too much of data orientation should not make you a machine 
that you lose the soft touch with your consumers, the humaneness that is required in a relationship because banking is a relationship. And this relationship extends maybe for decades and decades and maybe a family banks with the same bank going forward also. So that human touch needs to improve far, 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 far better. It should not be sacrificed at the altar of this uh, high data, AI and data and data and data. So this, I think, will also come into prominence of how much humaneness that we are bringing in the data sciences. And using data sciences, how can we actually maybe understand sentiments of people? Where were we going wrong? The third thing I see is journey analytics will increase tremendously. Mm -hmm. Today, what uh, even uh, in the HDFC bank we are attempting to do is there are lots of interactions happening in multiple touch points with the bank. Are we able to bring it all together and try and understand the journey of a customer? Because a customer is not interested in sending money from account A to account B. It is for a reason. So is there a way that we can understand all this stuff and be a little bit more proactive in the way in which we help them manage their money better? So that's journey analytics. I think as a science, as a practice will be far, far, far important going forward. So I'm going to pick up that second point you just said, and it's an interesting one because uh, there's some AI people trying to develop that, which is the bringing of the humaneness or the human touch into the, on top of the data. And uh, do you see that AI itself will be able to do that? Or do you think ultimately it's going to be a man with a machine together that is able to do this uh, thing? Or do you think the machine itself will learn how to do human emotion or understand human emotion better? I, I don't know whether that will be a dystopian future. <laughs> so, see, my, my view is uh, AI's uh, mission is going to be extremely good in data crunching and uh, it will do extremely fast. But judgment, inference, and those kind of qualities, I think still human will have the upper hand for it, at least my lifetime. So the judgment on what to look at the data and how to interpret and all those things will still be with the humans. So as long as human intelligence uh, on that area, I don't think it is getting surpassed and uh, artificial super intelligence is at least 30 years away for me. So, so I'm not extremely leaves, worried. So that leaves us at least with some hope. And I'm going to try and end this by bringing back to where we started, which is sport. You know, we get all this data, whether it's cricket or football, but in football, as you were saying, it's that human thing, right? Finally, the manager see exactly. something that the data cannot show the player. I mean, you know, I can be told that this bowler is going to bowl this particular ball because that's what he does. But finally, it's up to the human to kind of execute that in some form or to add their own little thing that a machine cannot add. And, um, you know, I guess um, that to me is where we need to focus as people. That's the one thing that the machine cannot do. And that's the learning I'm taking away from this, uh, from this conversation as well. Uh, Ravi, any last words that for any people getting into uh, wanting to be a future CMO on the Forbes list? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't think that we should be worried about. And uh, all, all, all your life, what you have learned is only one thing. Be curious. And uh, I, I strongly believe that uh, we were lucky, Suresh, that uh, we could learn one thing and uh, survive with that one thing for 25 years in a career. I don't think that's possible going forward because what we were doing in 2005 and what we are doing in 2015 are far different. And that means 
what people are going to do in 2025 and 2035 is going to be extremely different compared to what you would have done in 2020. So your learning agility is what is going to be the one which will take you places. So for that learning agility to be within a person, the person has to be extremely curious and the childlike curiosity is something which you should never kill. So whatever it is, keep the curiosity levels up, keep learning, keep imbibing things. Maybe you will not use it today, but doesn't matter. Somewhere or other, the agility to learn will help you when some things come in front of you. That's the only message. And the specific message to you is, uh, let's see who wins the derby today. I am fairly confident that uh, the combination of uh, Klopp's intelligence and Liverpool's analytics will prevail. But uh, <laughs> thank you very much for spending the time, Ravi. Wonderful talking My to pleasure. you. My pleasure. And uh, look forward to interacting more again on this. Uh, folks, we've had Ravi Santanam, CMO of HDFC Bank and person nominated on the Forbes list of the most influential CMOs talking to us about his journey in data, AI and marketing. Thank you very much, Ravi. And Thank you to all our listeners for listening. We have new episodes coming out every week, sometimes twice a week. Each will seek to bring a different and fresh perspective to the topic. Please subscribe to the podcast channel and share it widely in your network. I look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Meanwhile, stay safe personally in the age of COVID and stay relevant professionally in the age of AI.